Welcome to today's episode. We have as a guest, Ed Ray. Ed's got an amazing history, which he's going to share with us. He's the co-founder of Betfair. He's been an entrepreneur several times over, and he's an angel investor now and one of the most successful that I know here in London, but you could argue across Europe with some of the companies that he's backed. Thanks for joining us, Ed. Pleasure. Good to be here. Thank you. So one of the things that's interesting is learning about somebody's background before they became who they are today. Maybe just as a, as a snippet of your life, what did you study when you graduated and what was your first job? Okay, that's pretty easy. So I um, always thought I wanted to be an engineer. So I went to Oxford University and I studied engineering, economics and management. Um, so the idea being really to work out how you would apply engineering. Um, halfway through my degree, I decided I didn't want to be an engineer. Um, and then rather cliche, went around the milk round and became an investment banker at JP Morgan, uh, spent eight years at JP Morgan and then left um, to set up Betfair. So I had one job prior to Betfair, which was JP Morgan. Um, and both of those, both the degree, I mean, engineering is a brilliant degree in terms of, an, I couldn't remember, by the way, anything I learned there, but I can absolutely remember the approach and the problem solving skill and the sort of methodology and the way of thinking. Uh, and that's what I really took out of that. And what I took out of JP Morgan um, was a very, very professional approach to doing things um, and, and doing business if you're going to do it properly. You know, if you're going to do it, do it properly. And, you know, I wasn't consciously thinking that both of those things would help when, when I left to set up Betfair, but they did. And I look back now and I can really see the value in both of those. Um, so eight years isn't a very long time. Um, I left because this thing called dot-com was sort of becoming quite exciting. This is 1998, and if you didn't have a dot-com idea, everyone thought you were sort of socially slightly odd. Um, and I didn't have an idea. Um, actually, this idea was Andrew's idea, who I who teamed up with. Um, but what appealed to me straight away was it was a business where the technology of the day, which you know was then the internet, um, was the enabler. Um, it wouldn't have worked. The idea would, didn't work without this technology, and that to me was a really important an important thing in the in the business and so I was bored of what I was doing I didn't have any reason not to jack it in so I, I left um, left my job and got together with Andrew and started works this is probably now middle of 99 um, and to be honest didn't really have a clue part of the part of me wanting to do this was I wanted to know whether I could do it um, you know I hadn't set out to find a business to run again one of the things that I'm believe in now very much is that you don't set out to find a business, you set out to solve a problem. Um, and we had a problem, not necessarily a particularly bad one, but you know, we didn't think the gambling world was, you know, being well treated. So um, that, you know, that was our solution to that. Um, but I've got to be honest, we didn't really know what we were doing. And in many ways, that that ignorance was blissful, because it allowed us to be, you know, make our own decisions and go about things our own way. We found it a lot harder than we thought. We, you know, we built a little prototype. We showed it to a few people. They all thought it was fantastic. We thought this is going to be great. So we went to see all the VCs, um, and every single VC looked at us and just said, "You're smoking dope." Um, well, not literally, but um, in as many words. Uh, and every single one of them turned us down. Um, so that was a bit of a scary moment. Um, and then we went back to friends and family, and we said, "We're convinced this works." So we raised a million quid from friends and family. Um, Government of the day had just introduced EIS, and so we were, I think, pretty much the first, you know, one of the very first EIS companies. And I went around and told everyone that if they could risk, you know, fifty thousand pounds, then they could actually invest a hundred thousand because effectively the government would underwrite the other fifty through EIS. Um, and we raised a million pounds like that. 
Um, timing is everything. We closed our round middle of February 2000, um, so literally two weeks, I think, before the market crashed. And had we not done that, then I would still be at JP Morgan, I expect, um, because we wouldn't have managed to raise it after that. Um, and then we raised, you know, raised a million. And, and I think, you know, I look back now and again, at the time it felt awful, but actually I think probably the best first stroke of luck that we had was that we didn't raise a lot of money and that we were very focused on what we were trying to do and really had to think straight away about, you know, building something and turning it into a business. And we had a number of close shades. I remember after we'd launched, um, an investment banker came to see me who was a banker of, of FreeServe and said, FreeServe think this is an amazing business and they need to be in gambling and, you know, why don't you think about being their gambling partner? And the reason we were excited about this is because we knew that our biggest competitor at the time, a company called Flutter, um, was very close to doing this deal. And we thought they're about to do this deal. They, by the way, had raised millions. We thought we've got to do this deal. It's obviously the future. And we went in there and we agreed to do the deal. And basically, it was late on a Friday afternoon. And the uh, there were rumors that FreeServe was going to be taken over. And I sort of asked them, I said, any chance we can have a change of control clause just in case you get taken over? We're not sure who we're going to end up doing business with. You know, they looked at me like, who are you? Um, and then said, oh, we'll have to come back to you on Monday. And over the weekend, my marketing director rang me up and said, um, she said, I've hardly been able to sleep this week weekend because I can't get out of my head that I think we're doing the wrong thing here. And we just had one of those sort of cold towel moments where we all looked at, you know, should we be doing this? We were going to pay them. You know, we'd raised a million quid. And I think we were going to pay them something like, you know, several hundred thousand pounds to be their betting partner. Um, it would have been a disaster. It would have sunk the business. We'd run out of money and that would have been it. And we rang them back up on Monday and said, we've had a complete change of heart. And again, powerful lesson there in terms of no matter at what stage you sort of, you know, your gut tells you something is wrong. Um, I learned to listen to that pretty much. Um, so early days were, were challenging. Um, so that story, just to give us a little bit of context, how many employees did you have at that time? So at that stage, we were probably, we'd launched, so this was probably now towards the end of 2000, so we were probably 30 or 40, so we raised our money in February of 2000, we got our, we had set ourselves a target of getting our business, you know, launched um, in uh, May, and we were a couple of weeks late, we launched it in early June 2000, which actually I'm still reasonably proud of, and again, one of the things there is that we stripped away all the things that we didn't need to do, we said we've got to get it out on time. Um, we, you know, we were building a marketplace. So, you know, contrary to what everyone thinks, we never once primed any of our markets. So we didn't sort of sit there and put our own prices up. Um, we did find, you know, when I got the inve original investors in on board, I did find investors who I thought would fulfill some of those roles for us and, and sort of be prepared to put, to put liquidity on. Um, we quickly realized that, you know, the Betfair market, all of our all of our customers were representing both sides in many ways. You know, they might have started on one, either lay side or the back side, but they moved around a bit. Um, and we had some very clever software. Um, Andrew had written some very clever software that puts um, implied prices up without going into all the details. You know, basically, if you were backing two outcomes, looking to back two outcomes in a football match, i.e. win, win and draw, then we would automatically generate the third price for you because, of course, effectively, you know, it's a zero-sum game in terms of how they all fit together. So we had some very clever software that therefore put lots of numbers on the screen that were genuine numbers but hadn't all been put there by um, by our customers. Um, very clever but also very complicated and actually all of our early stage problems came from that algorithm that kept on crashing and causing the whole system to go down. So if I had my time again, I would have probably turned it off turned it off to begin with and turned it on a bit later when it actually had more value, but it, you know, it clearly helped. But... Um, 
again, woke up very early to one of the beauties of our business is that it was a little unoften. We were clipping the ticket. We were doing it, you know, several times a day. Um, we realized quite quickly that, you know, in terms of velocity, in terms of recycling people's winnings. So, you know, someone had a bet. It was in our interest to make sure we settled that really quickly. Um, you know, and so we've, you know, we spent a lot of time making the system as efficient as possible so that people could, you know, do what they wanted to. Um, and, because it's you know little and often it became cash flow positive very really very quickly in sort of the space of probably seven or eight months i think after launch um and having not raised very much money we did do another raise in september from the same friends and family group at twice the price so you know one pre-crash one post-crash but twice the price but obviously at that stage we'd started um, we weren't really doing any marketing in the description at that stage, although we did get, luckily, the sort of trade newspaper, the Racing Post, who sort of picked us up as an underdog. They loved the underdog scenario. We were taking on the big established industry, and so they you know, they really helped us there with some some sort of following commentary and what have you. Um, and you know, as I say, we were we were cash flow positive um, probably early two thousand and one. And at that stage, you know, we wanted to get to the stage where we knew we control the business. Um, because having not had very much money, then once we knew we got it, we then thought, okay, we can now let the sales out a bit quicker, you know, when we need to. Um, we were, you know, we started doing a bit of, bit of very focused, very specific marketing. Um, again, we realized that actually we were in a relatively small market, um, people wise, and we were going for the sort of top of that, you know, the, the classic marketing pyramid. We thought we were at the top. What was interesting is that every time we investigated, we found that we were lower down than we thought, and there was still more above us. Um, and so we had to keep pushing ourselves up a bit. Um, but quite quickly, we demonstrated, you know, we, we developed an interesting way of looking at marketing, which I still use to this day, which I think now is very, um, sort of probably quite cliche. Um, and I'm sure lots of other people are doing it too, but it's just, you know, cost of acquisition in and of itself is, you know, is irrelevant. Um, it's cost of acquisition for the type of customer you get. And again, in gambling, we realize you can't average out. If you average out across a complete cohort, then you get a very misleading um, picture. So, you know, we kept on breaking it down. We kept on trying to be much more specific about the value of the customer. If we had a customer, you know, who was worth a thousand pounds to us and a customer who was worth a hundred pounds to us, then, you know, actually, we should be happy to spend sort of you know 750 getting the first but only 75 getting the second but if we looked at the two of them and said well they're worth 1100 where would we come we'd come you know much lower down we'd sort of come at sort of 300 and that would work for one and not for the other so um we were continually refining our cohorts to work out you know where the where the real value was um just a quick one on that uh you could argue that some of this stuff comes after the fact you only know after the fact yep. if a customer levels up to that lifetime value what did you have any interesting ways of pre-qualifying? You, you, so you, you're right. You obviously know after the fact, but quite quickly. I mean, we found our, our first and by far the most lucrative um, and efficient marketing channel was actually the Racing Post that we did some stuff with. Now, you know, in internet terms, very uninteresting because it has a readership of about a hundred thousand. Um, you know, so it's tiny. But, you know, it's the mo it was in its day the most expensive newspaper anywhere. You know, you didn't buy the Racing Post unless you were, A, interested in, you know, it's, it's a betting, it was a betting newspaper. So you bought the Racing Post because you were interested in betting and you were, therefore your propensity to convert was very, very high. So a small universe with a very high conversion ratio for us was very valuable and, so and sophisticated readership. And, and bearing in mind that what we were doing was a more complicated way of, of, of approaching the market. You know, we were giving the customer way more control and way more say in their transaction than they ever had before. 
Prior to us, their transaction was effectively take it or leave it. They'd go to a bookmaker, they'd say, I want to back this outcome. And the bookmaker would say, there's the price, take it or leave it. Now, if the price was wrong, normally if the price is wrong, you can say, well, I'll take the other side. If someone says, you know, some, someone offers you something and, they, and it's too expensive, then you can say, well, actually, I can go, you know, I'll sell it at that or I'll buy it at that or whatever. You, you couldn't do that in betting. So first of all, you couldn't take the other side of the market, so we allowed you to do that. Then we sort of said, well, we'll allow you to sort of negotiate and set your own price in exactly any order-driven exchange. So, you know, it was more complicated. The Racing Post readership got it very quickly, that sort of early adopter mentality. Then over time, we, yeah, we worked, you know, we looked at silly little things like, you know, when people logged on, we could tell what operating system they were running, we could tell what browser they were running, so we could get a sense immediately of, you know, their level of tech sophistication. And, you know, we, we, could, we built models that predicted, and not all in the first year, I hasten to add, but over a period of time, you know, obviously where they came in from, initial deposit size, how they made their initial deposit, the type of bet they had to begin with. Um, you know, we then worked out how quickly they churned and, and if they did different things, um, how that churn ratio, how that churn rate really fell off. So actually, we then would take certain customers who came in and we said, right, we think they have because of how they came in, what their initial deposit size was, what their email address is, i.e. where do they work, um, often tells you quite a lot about the person. You know, the, the tech configuration, as much as we could see, we'd profile them. If they were a really high, potential high-value customer, then we would engage in a you know, six to eight week education process where every week we would take them into a different facet of the site. So, you know, a simple bet as they knew it and then a bet that's a slightly different one and then taking the other side of the market and then leaving an order and then cancelling and betting and running and all these different kinds of things. And we knew that if we got them through that, you know, whatever it was, six or eight week period, that actually they were as likely as not to be with us in five years time. Um, and so, you know, we, and, and equally, there'll be some other people who come in and go, you know what, they just don't look like they're showing us the, the attributes that we need and we didn't spend too much time on them. So we were, we were quite, you know, we got much better at this point on, but we were really focused on profiling and segmenting um, customers. So on that note, a lot of companies today are using, you know, machine learning as a way of sort of sorting through that data and then coming up with these conclusions. Yep. How are you guys doing this? Because it sounds like a lot of work to sort of correlate all these variables and then seeing how they influence each other. How were you doing this? Um, well, I, I mean, we had we, we had a big one of the again clever things we did, not by accident rather than design, was we just recorded every single bit of data that we got, um, you know, straight away. Uh, so we did have databases of everyone's interaction, all of their sort of um, transactions, and um, Andrew was very much a sort of you know he was a database type person he liked data he liked sort of wading through it i taught myself sql to sort of work out how i could just sit down and, you know and write silly fairly boring queries and, and and you know we did a very rough and ready thing and again one of the big lessons i i learned out of this is you know the 80 20 rule uh, one of our investors has written i think about 10 books on the 80 20 rule um, he was therefore very sort of focused on it but you get a long way by just doing a, a few sort of basic things i you know i'm not smart enough and was never smart enough to be able to get the perfect answer and again, I came back to this is my engineering sort of background, but I could get quite a long way to get a good indicative answer. And then if I thought there was something there, I might then pass it on to someone else and say, right, please, can you sort of finish this? But we did a lot of rough and ready learning. Um, and again, one of the mantras I always think about, slightly different now, but in our day, you know, we used to say to people, computers just do what humans do. They just do it faster. Um, and so actually, always too often we, I heard people saying, oh, yeah, I'm, we can't do this because I need the tech guys to build me this, this, and this to do it. And I go, you know what, just go and do it by hand, work it out, you know, whether that's a, a complicated, you know, like write your own SQL. And if it works, if we really think there's something there, then we'll sort of, you know, 
we'll, we'll make this more industrial and we'll actually get it integrated properly, but we're not going to waste time building something now that actually, you know, turns out in six months' time was a waste of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so we tried and tested and tried and tested and you know, got lots of things wrong, um, made lots of mistakes. Um, but we were, you know, we were on a, we were on a data business. And I think, you know, again, the nice thing about our business is you put money in. Um, and again, and uh, one of the things we realized very early on was that the amount of money that we had sitting on deposit from our customers was a fantastically accurate forward predictor of the business we were going to do. So, you know, we made sure that we, we you know, we, we made sure it was easy for people to deposit. We made sure actually that if they took their money out, a lot of people would come in, have a bet, take their money out straight away. And we realized quite quickly they were testing us. So we made sure that went through straight away. Um, yeah, we had some challenges with that because actually when you put money in, in those days, it would take three days to clear. We could tell it was coming in, so we'd, we'd credit your account straight away. But we couldn't speed the three days up on the way back out. So if you took money out, you'd say, hold on, you took my money straight away, but you took me three days to give it back, what's going on? And so we had to communicate to people why that was and tell them that actually we didn't get their money for three days, but we knew they were good for it and, and they should think that we're good for it on the way back out. Um, and we made sure that, you know, we made those friction, those those things at either end, like money in and money out, KYC, all those kind of things, made those as frictionless as possible, as easy as possible, so that people then, you know, left their stuff with us because that became a really important indicator. And, you know, and obviously if you've got money with us, it's a real... It's a real asset uh, and loyalty in it. Um, so, just for humor's sake, could you share one of the conclusions that your data about behaviors uh, or marketing campaigns led to? Like, if people were coming from this neighborhood or with this browser or this particular amount, it led to this. Just to give a sense for what unorthodox looks like. Um, now you've got me. I, well, I think one of the. I mean, you'd be amazed at some people who were incredibly tech. Um, had some really quite basic setups. I mean, I should put again in this into context. I mean, when we started in 2000, yeah, Saturday afternoons were our really busy time because that's when most sport was on. So, yeah, we were still in the days of plugging phone sockets into walls and getting your modem to fire up with all those horrible noises. They told you you got 58K, you know, download speed on a Saturday afternoon. You didn't. You got about 9 or 10. So building a business... And I, again, one thing we realized very quickly is that the more capacity we've, we generated, the more that people sort of, you know... Found a found a way to use it. Um, I, God, I, I mean, there, we we had we had you know people who were were sort of sitting there doing this. You know, we had sort of the initial sort of screen scrapers who try and you know work everything out. We had people who almost believed that you know everything was instantaneous and that you know so that, that didn't understand some of the pitfalls of the internet. So we had to sort of explain to them that we can serve stuff as fast as we can, but actually if you know which I can get out here, it's taking you know a long time to download and to, to sort of refresh your screen. That's not always our issue is sometimes your issue sometimes it was our issue and it took us a long time to realize how the internet worked um, because we'd have people ring us up saying your site is down and we go no we can see it and we've got other customers using it and then we'd realize that someone's router somewhere in the internet had fallen down and for a subset of our users it did look like the internet was down um, and we had no idea about that to begin with um, and we sort of came up a fairly steep learning curve on, mm. on that so i mean our reliability was horrible to begin with i mean and I look back now, you know, we just, we were so poor at keeping the site going. You know, I used to go in on a Saturday morning and just watch this load line and my heart would sink because I just knew every time it was just going to go up and it was going to redline at about sort of one o'clock on a Saturday afternoon and we were going to be up against it the whole time. And of course, in those days, you know, we didn't have, we couldn't just spin up another couple of servers in the cloud. I mean, we had it all sitting, you know, in our own data center and, it, you know, every time we wanted to upgrade was a big decision. Uh, and too often, 
I was probably too conservative in saying, well, you know, we need to spend more to upgrade faster and get ahead of it. I mean, we went through a phase, you know, I likened it to the, the doubling dice at backgammon when, you know, you're all around there and then another customer, you know, if you're, if you're all sort of sitting there doing, you know, 100, 150 pound bets, but you've actually got a person who sits there and says, well, I want to do a 100 pound bet. And then suddenly two people come in with a 50, they, they put those together, that's 100, so he can now come in. So he comes in and there's 100. And then suddenly that he comes in on 100 and there's a couple of other, and the thing, you know, it does, it, what we didn't realize was how much business we were doing, but how much we were leaving behind. So some of our big customers, we thought we were doing what they wanted to do, and we realized we were doing an absolute fraction yeah. of, their, of their sort of latent. Tip. So I, I want to touch on that in, in a bit, because there's a few companies that, that are here that are in a situation where they could spend money to create that liquidity. And you have a lot of experience with, with Property Partner and Funding Circle on how to create liquidity in marketplaces. So we want to jump that. But before we, we transition to sort of the director roles that you have and some of the companies you work with today, walk us through some of the management issues. You know, with all that growth that you had, um, you know, we, we had Dom here earlier uh, talking about options and motivation and transparency and, and sharing salaries. But, you know, that's, that's relatively a recent thing. Maybe you can walk us through some fights you've had. Maybe did you so, and Andrew always get along? You know, that uh, kind of stuff. No. Um, so loads of issues. And first thing I'd say is, um, you know, I came out of investment banking that does not prepare you for management to any degree, period. Um, and I was notoriously bad at it, as I'm sure lots of other people will tell you who, who were at Betfair. Um, you know, when we started this, as I say, we, we were sort of doing it from first principles. I sent emails around saying to people, you know, we're starting this business. Anyone know anyone who's smart might want to get interested. We had a load of generalists to start with who uh, got things done. They were a lot of common sense. They were pragmatic. And we made a lot of decision by sort of committee. So there, were Andrew, there was Andrew and me, and then there was that sort of founding management team that sort of sat around us. And we all sat in a room, you know, about this size. And to begin with, everything got done that way. It got done well. Everyone bought in. It was, you know, very seamless. Obviously, as you start to grow, that becomes untenable. Um, and you know, we, and then we, we suddenly thought, how do we put management structure in? And we need to have a you know, technologist who's actually a bit better at scaling, and we need to have an ops person who can scale. And you know, and and we started to break out of that, and and we had trouble with that. I mean, Andrew and I as co-founders were very different. Um, our skill sets were, you know, they overlapped a bit, but they were fundamentally different. We had some some major blarneys. What I would say is. You know, we weren't friends before um, we came together to do this, um, and actually, that that you know, dynamic worked very well. You know, I don't spend, I don't really see him now, um, and we had lots and we had some big arguments sometimes. You know, that other people could hear. But what I think, I look back and I think actually we had lots of arguments. Pretty much think that we all, almost without exception, we ended up in the right place at the end of that argument. Sometimes I was adamant that we had to do it one way, and I was completely wrong. Sometimes he was adamant he was wrong. Sometimes we compromised. You know, and, and I'm not advocating that you should have a very fiery relationship, but sometimes things need to be said and they need to be done. Again, time is such an undervalued commodity in all these businesses, particularly when you're building a marketplace, because, you know, someone out there, by the way, you, know, one, you, you all know, you've got the idea. As soon as you've got the idea, somebody else has got it at the same time, right? And so, you know, it is about getting to critical mass. It's about getting to that first proof point before anyone else. And so, you know, Again, because we didn't have much money, we realised that you know that was a that was precious. But for us, time was really precious. So sometimes, by having this sort of quite um, undiplomatic way of addressing things, we got to the answer quite quickly. I'm not saying it was right, and I think you know we definitely made some mistakes along the way, and you know handled some people badly. 
the, then the challenge, so that was our dynamic. Um, and interestingly, I look at, you know, I'm involved in businesses where there's one founder, two founders, and three founders. Um, I think if you ask me to choose, I think three is the, is, seems to be the best number because one, I think it's really hard. One, you know, you need someone if you're one to be able to turn to and to be able to sort of, you know, spin ideas and to sort of have, you know, question your own thinking. Two, if you're not careful, and this is obviously where I was, you can get locked slightly into a slightly predictable, you know, you always say that, I always say that. Three brings in another dimension and you find the third person sometimes here, sometimes there, and it just seems to work better. I think more than three, and I've been in a couple of more than three, it just gets unwieldy. You know, and maybe we were a bit that way too with our sort of, you know, decision making by consensus. Um, but then as we started to grow, it's very hard with, you know, with people who, A, were probably friends, you know, partly because that's why they came to join you. They became friends when you're in the business. And as you start to outgrow people and yourselves, you know, to suddenly sort of professionalize that, um, that's where I really missed not having, you know, professional investors. Because I think that that was completely unknown to us. And I think if we'd have professional investors, we would have made a much better job of that, um, you know, candidly. About three years in, the board told me that, you know, I was the wrong person to lead the business. Um, they were right. They did it in a slightly clumsy way. Um, and as a result, the first person we brought in to, you know, as an outside CEO really didn't work out. Um, and again, I think we knew deep down it wasn't working quite early on. Um, and we should have dealt with, it, dealt with it much more quickly than we did. Um, and we had a period for, for a year and a half, two years, where the business sort of lost its way because it didn't have the right person leading it. Hmm. And, and at its peak, how many employees were, were while, while you were still there? At its peak, while I was still there, too many. Um, again, an interesting lesson. Uh, we probably got to about just over 2,000, I should think. Um, and partly then because, you know, again, I, I as I say, managing people not my forte, Easy, easy when you're not doing it to say to say what needs to be done. Much harder to actually do it. Um, but what we tended to do, if someone, you know, we made the mistake too often. If someone had reached their ceiling, rather than saying you've done an amazing job, we're now going to bring, we're going to upgrade your role, your position. We sort of split the role and we brought someone in and we said, well, your job's got too big for you, so that's too big. So let's give you half of it and let's bring someone else in to do half. And then you've got two people doing the job that actually one good person can do. You've then got a bit of communication issues. They then big people. So our, our organization got very dysfunctional. It got, it got fat and it just got a bit sort of, you know, we got bogged down. And one of the things when, you know, Brion came in, um, you know, whatever it was, five or six years ago, was to really sort of streamline it and and sort of turn it up upside down, which is, which is what it needed. You know, you're looking back and sharing these stories in a way where, in theory, if you knew what you knew now, you could execute some of these changes. But... Is that even possible? Is it possible for, let's say, Ed to to go back in the context you were in with what you know now? Um, let's say some of the founders in this room who um, are now wiser because of what you've just shared um, try to implement some of these changes that they're aware, like either the people that they can't uh, migrate off or they themselves feel like they're out, out of their depth. Or does it really require some external party? Is it is it the, the momentum of having relationships stuck the way they are, like with you and Andrew, prevent uh, change unless a third party comes in and really has gravitas and and can force people into a different mindset that no matter how motivated you might be to do, it just can't because people just expect the same or the same. I I think it, well, I think it really comes down to the individual. I mean, I'm much wiser now looking back on what we got wrong. 
and some of the things we got right, but mainly on what we got wrong. Um, that I'd like to think I'd certainly recognise what needed to be done better now than than I did then. I'm not. I, I still don't know whether actually if I went in and did it as the CEO, whether I'd be you know I'd be better at it. But I don't think I'd be you know as good as some of the other CEOs that I see around the place you know now in business. You know, I, interestingly, in the business I'm involved in now, I spend you know when I'm engaging with the business, it's almost always talking about the things that we screwed up and got wrong. You know, I'm not telling them you should try this; it worked for us. It's absolutely brilliant. You know, every now and again I say. If they're doing something good, well, that's interesting. We, we did that. It worked very well. Or, you know, but no, more often it's like, careful of this pitfall. We got this wrong. Be careful of this. And, and certainly on people, you know, it's, as I say, um, anyone, anyone who listens to this who's ex-Betfair will laugh out loud when they say, you know, it, it wasn't something I was good at. I recognize that now. And as I say, I, it, it's easy to recognize and to sort of offer those opinions and, and that advice. It's always harder to do it. And, you know, I think the way, I think the way that we started Betfair because of the way we built it together um, and, and that for the first team, I think it would have been very hard for anyone who was in there to fundamentally do it a different way um, because part of its success was that early group that that got us over the hump. We were, we were all of us, good at the very early stage stuff. We were not good at the sort of scaling, the scaling side of it. Um, and, you know, businesses have go through different phases and, you know, in many ways, it's a bit like a, you know, I said this once to someone, it's a bit like when a snake sheds its skin and starts again. And that's sort of what you have to do. I mean, you know, we went through, Betfair went through a painful adolescent period. Um, but we had built a lot of good stuff at the beginning. We had built a very loyal customer base. And I think that was unbelievably valuable to us. We built a, a brand that really became, you know, stood for something. So, you know, I think that allowed us to go through our slightly um, wobbly patch and, and come out the other side. So walk us through the transition from that to, the director roles that you have now and your angel role. Yeah, so so having moved, so I stepped aside as CEO of the business in what two thousand and three, so about three years in. I then went and set it up in Australia. Um, part of that was not really wanting to be right in the same place with the new CEO. You know, I was a bit found it a bit difficult to sort of step out. I, with the benefit of hindsight now, I should have you know it was the right thing, so I don't regret it at all. Set the business up in Australia, then took over as chairman, um, and I would say that founders probably don't make good chairman. Um, don't think I made a great chairman, partly because as a founder, you're, you know, you're so involved. You're, you've got a view on everything. You've got a strong opinion. You know, as a chair, very, founders can make very good non-execs because they're free to voice a view. They're free to really have something that is passionate, they're passionate about. As a chairman, you're really trying to sort of sit there and bring everyone together, build a consensus, communicate much more. Um, so I, I am skeptical as to certainly, you know, whether founders who, who are, you know, passionate and vocal, which, I am about that business. Um, you know, I think that probably didn't help me on the chair side. Um, we then floated it. Benefit of hindsight, I would probably have left at the time of float. Didn't enjoy doing the public company stuff. Again, it's a new, it's a new involved uh, area. I, you know, we went through another very steep learning curve when we were in public. Um, it was painful at times, but again, ultimately, I think it was very good for us because it shook us out of some of the lethargy that had crept in and I think taught us you know showed us some home truths that we probably were blind to you know when you're out there in your public business you have a share price and you have people who come in and look at your business with a fresh pair of eyes and go that's great but that's absolutely awful you're there sometimes you don't see that but it's absolutely awful so again I it was I learned a lot through that process um and you know but had done it for 12-13 years and decided to go and do something else so then Still love this idea of, you know, marketplaces and platforms and network effects, you know, which Betfair had in spades, um, and then actually index. 
kindly sort of, you know, who were just looking at Funding Circle at the time, sort of said, there's an interesting business we'd like, you know, why don't you have a look at us, have a look at it and see what you think. And so I joined the, the Funding Circle board, um, you know, when they were 10 people um, and or probably less than. Um, and then sort of started that sort of journey almost again. Um, and, you know, they, they have done an amazing job as they've scaled that business. Some, some you know, a lot of similarities, um, some things that, you know, they outsourced their tech to begin with. We always built our own. I'm a big fan, actually, where you can, if you've got clever IP of building your own, just because you can scale it, you can develop it, you can build it. So we had a difficult transition at one stage in Funding Circle where we had to take different bits from outside, you know, that were third-party developed, and we had to sort of break away from those. Otherwise, we're just going to become more and more and more and more dependent on them, and we then knew that we would never have our, you know, we wouldn't be able to sort of control our own destiny to the same degree. So luckily, we did that early enough it's always a painful decision it just but it's those kind of painful decisions just get more painful the longer you wait um and then they had some their 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 marketplace again you 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 move left side is like is ahead of right side so you prime the right side and then you over prime the right side so the right hand side takes over and then the right side's ahead of the left side and obviously you know your marketplace gets you deal on the lower of the two not the higher of the two so you know they were very good at just saying right we now need to focus on you know, building, you know, getting more investment money available, then suddenly we have to switch over and make sure we've got more borrowing money. And so, you know, as you get bigger, that gets easier. But to begin with, it's sort of quite discrete lumps that you have to do. But I mean, I, th- I think you're being, <laughs> you're perhaps downplaying the complexity that I see in something like Funding Circle versus, let's say, something like uh, Halo, the, the cab before it got acquired. You know, with a cab, you know, a default in a cab showing up or something, it's a nuisance, but it's not somebody losing a lot of money. Um, walk us through some of the early days of, of how to make that liquidity match and some of the challenges, if you can share them, I don't know, maybe you can, but how, how was it that, that the platform created trust between both parties? Because this is like ultimately probably one of the hardest ways yeah. of establishing um, trust. So, so trust is very, you know, absolutely crucial. Um, so the first thing is you've got to have as transparent a platform as possible. So in the early days, you know, we allowed... Um, you know, potential investors, there was a chance for them to talk to, to potential borrowers. We started with our loan size quite small. Um, and again, when you're building liquidity in anything, I think you really want to constrain it and allow it to build and to really get to sort of, you know, where it's bursting out of its available space. And then you can gradually build, increase the available space. The worst thing you can do with liquidity is to have too much available space and never fill it up. Um, you know, so. On, on funding circle, therefore, they started. You know, I think the first loans they're doing were sort of like for five or ten thousand pounds, which is you know not a huge amount. But they got the loan there; it got filled, so the borrower was happy. You know, the investor could see that the loan's getting filled, so they're happy. They're getting an interesting amount of information. Um, you know, things do go wrong. You know, what you have to understand when you're when you're investing money is that there will be losses, and so we were always you know, one of the best things that funding circle always did was be very open about the performance of its loan book. It was there for you to see. You could, you know, you could look and interrogate it. It was publicly available information. You know, we were standing by the sort of success of the of our of you know, the algorithms that we were that we were finding. And and obviously the more you do, the better they get and that thing becomes self-fulfilling. But if you don't if if you try and hide anything, and the same again, same at Betfair, if you try and hide it, then I think people they very quickly work it out. I mean, what we realized in I realized in both those businesses there are super smart people who are outside interfacing with you and if you think you're smart and you're doing it all well there are other people there who are just as smart and who are looking at it in a slightly different angle and if you can work something out they can work it out and so very quickly you want to just be open with them about about what you're doing now 
um, you know, we had we had examples to say oh, that that you know on the Betfair side the sort of implied odds algorithm. You know, we put it up there and someone spotted it in you know minutes what was happening, um, and they weren't upset by it. But then they were sort of saying, well, why is that price? And you know, is that the right price? And we said, well, of course it has to be rounded to a certain number. And they said, well, why do you round it up versus down? And you, you know, so you have all these conversations straight away. And you just therefore need to be very clear about you know your your, your customers. Will, my view is people will work it out straight away. Um, trust is important. When things go wrong, do not try and sugarcoat it. Do not try and sort of you know sweep it under the carpet. If it's not your fault, it's still your problem. And again, that is a really important issue. You know, that sometimes you know, I'm I'm a I'm the end user. I'm interfacing with a business, whether it's you know, Betfair or Funding Circle or whatever. If something has gone wrong, it might be something that's gone wrong in their in their system. It might be something that's gone wrong with a third party system that they are interfacing to. I don't see that. I just me as the, as a customer, my interface is with you know the brand business. And so the brand business, you have to recognise it might not be your fault, but it's your problem. Um, and so too often people say, "Oh, out of our hands. It's so and so's fault down there. We're very sorry. We'll you know we'll do what we can with it." People don't want to hear that. They just want to hear that you know. We're sorry. We're on it. We're, we we're taking responsibility for this, and we will we will sort it out. Um, so trust, yeah, very important. Um, and again, I think these things you just it, you you grow. It is um, it's, it's hard to remember actually without going back and looking at all the numbers. Just you know how that sort of number doubles and doubles again and doubles again. Um, I, I think in in network businesses, I think one of the challenges is just holding the tension in the system enough that you build up that sort of latent sort of you know it's a bit like the volcano that you know once it's erupted it's all you know that it's all gone you sort of want to keep the lid on it and just keep venting it a little bit um because if if you sort of if the lid comes off then you lose all of that sort of built up demand and it, and you lose your momentum a bit if you look at the companies you've worked with now as, as an investor and also as a as a director you know l max and prodigy finance and property partner and if you to look at the habits that you now have when you enter a new company as a as a director, what are the? It, I mean, you might not have it structured this way, but is there like a checklist uh, that you have, maybe not formalized, but just that you habitually do about checking staff, checking growth, checking this, just as a as a marker for what maybe no. a founder might think through. I don't. I don't have a checklist. Um, maybe I should do. Um, I, look, things I look for. Um, I'm all. I, I, you obviously, you know, some of this is very cliche, but you obviously want to find people who just live and breathe what, you're, what they're doing. That's really important, first and foremost. Equally, though, you want to really, you've got to find people who understand that they don't have all the answers. Um, and you know, the biggest mistake I see is people who tell me that this is what's going to happen, and they put it out there, and it doesn't happen, and they refuse to believe that it didn't happen. Whereas, in actual fact, if they'd have believed it could happen, they say, "Gosh, that's a surprise. I wasn't expecting that to happen." And it might be only marginally different, but sometimes their pride sort of gets in the way of saying, "Gosh, I didn't actually get that that right to begin with." Um, so I think that's I think that's important. You know, I do have certainly when people are starting to um, spend serious dollars on marketing and stuff like that, I really ask people to be very focused about what are you trying to get out of this. Um, I ask them always to say, "Right, here's I want a one piece of paper that says what's what are you doing here? What does success look like? What does failure look like?" Because the biggest, to me, the thing that frustrates me the most is when people do a big project like that, 
they're very you know and then it doesn't quite work out as they say and they then they try and post rationalize and go well actually we didn't get this number of people through but the good news is we got our awareness over here has gone up and we think well that wasn't what we set out to do we might take that in and say that's interesting that's useful for the next campaign but don't kid ourselves that actually something happened that we weren't expecting means it was a good decision um so so i look i like to look at that i'm you know i'm big on big on data um i'm big on um sort of you know just making sure you know the efficiency and making sure that you know all the that the efficiency bit moves around the whole time so you know there's the, it might be customer service is sort of letting you down because it's just you know it's straining and that breaks you fix that and then something else breaks and then payments breaks and the, and your whole time you just got to be moving you need people to be aware of that and to be sort of flexible mm. next to last question if a founder shares something like this campaign failed and instead we had this other thing but continues to perhaps share things that have gone wrong in a in a in an honest attempt to get the feedback from the board um, one of two things possibly might happen one the board loses faith in this person's ability to execute or two the board understands that there is some issues with this and they express some level of empathy and help that founder more often than not i see that it's almost like the first happens more often than not where there is a loss of faith on the ability to execute which is the reason why it forces some founders into a defensive position mm-hmm. how do you maybe as a chairman in, in in previous companies or as a director help founders manage that thin line between being transparent and saying look i did this and it failed and and not building this negative impression with the board but at the same time being transparent about things that are failing because that's just the name of the game at the at this stage Yeah. I mean it's a good it's a great question. It's it, it, look it's it's difficult and there's no there's no clear answer. I mean I think you know I I'm, I I don't get upset when things go wrong. I get very upset when things go wrong the second time for the for repeated errors. So, you know, I think if if we're repeating mistakes and not learning from mistakes then you know that's I think you've got a serious issue there. So, because if that if people start to repeat them then you're thinking well, you know, fa- failure is not good. but good things can come out of it that's the way i look at it but if you're not taking the good things that come out of it then it's clearly very bad um it, so it depends i mean it, you know if people are trying lots of things you know if they're trying 10 things and eight of them are going well and two of them are failing the whole time then you know you don't beat them up on the two that failed even though you want to know about those you don't want them to hide those two um if they're trying 10 things and two are working and eight are not working then you have to sort of question judgment at some stage and you have to sort of say is there enough focus um you know the temptation when things go wrong is to suddenly say well actually let's start throwing something over there and see if it sticks and something over there and that's a bad idea i think you you know again focus streamline um and sometimes you know the other thing is has have people got the ability to say no to doing things rather than saying yes to doing things now normally i say to everyone you know in the business you know find a reason to get it done and that's very important i do think sometimes you need a judgement that the senior level you know when you're making big decisions say that actually you know what This is interesting, but I'm going to park it because it's not right for us now, and it's not going to, you know, it's not key in our in our our focus. And then you're just, you know, you're again as a board and as a founder, you're in this together, right? And so, you know, you share, you know, we all get stressed when things go wrong, and we all say, right, we all work together and have to work out how we solve that problem. And you know, I look at you know, Elmax is an interesting business for us. So we launched Elmax. It was an R and D thing in Betfair. As it happened, we launched it. like i think a week or two before or after i can't remember we floated so there was a ridiculous amount of focus on what was happening in almax um that was not intentional 
Uh, we probably allowed people to get a bit carried away with what this might be. We launched it. We thought we had some amazing tech. We did have some amazing tech. And it sort of went, phew, you know, bit of a damp squib. Um, so we changed the, the management in it. Um, you know, mutual, this is genuinely mutual. I think the guy who was doing it decided he want to do it. Bought in a real, I and mean, we really focused the business laser-like into one vertical that we thought we could make work. Um, and so we just turned everything else off. So the, 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 the launch remit that we had gone out with, it was in our prospectus and we basically canned most of that and went right down to, you know, we went from retail CFDs to institutional FX. Um, and slowly but surely began to build an interest and, and, and business there. And we tried a few things that didn't work still, but now, you know, there's a business that today does, you know, $12 billion of volume a day in FX, um, you know, that started is in the back end of a sort of, you know, betting business. And, you know, again, there, what we learned, though, was that the level of execution, the level of technology required there is a, is quantum different. You know, so much so, <laughs> my amusing anecdote that we were, we opened an exchange and we, we had, before we opened one in Japan, we had customers in Japan trying to access our platform, you know, and we are, we're sort of trading in, you know, in the micro millisecond borders, you know, and they were complaining about our speed of execution until we pointed out that had they worked out what the latency was between them pressing send on their computer or send algorithmically in Japan and actually just how long the latency was between Japan and the UK. And that, you know, we couldn't beat the speed of light because that was basically the constraining factor. And it was interesting that they hadn't, they hadn't even sort of clocked. They, they hadn't thought about that. And so we then said, right, okay, well, we had, the good news is you're that keen on it that we now know we should put in an installation in Japan because, you know, yeah. you've unearthed the, the, the sort of restraining point. So I, you know, with all of those, get knocked down 99 times. You just got to get up a hundred times. And out of those problems come solutions and, you know, I, I used to hate it. I'd go to bed and think, oh, Christ, this is the one that finishes this. But it's always the one that makes you because actually once you've got, once you've solved that problem, you know that somebody else has got to solve it behind you. And they might solve it twice as fast as you because they, they can look at what you did, but they can't solve it instantaneously. Mm. And that's actually quite reassuring as you, as you go along. So I was going to ask you, as my last question, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? But it sounds like you've just, you've just made a couple of really good quotes there. Is there anything memorable that comes to mind that's... Um, look, I, I think certainly when we started, um, I alluded to earlier, there are no shortcuts um, in terms of, you know, if you're going to do it, do it properly and be proud of the way you're doing it. Be honest and open about the way you're doing it. Now, we started that in gambling, um, you know, so we had to be like that. It's the same in finance, you know, you can, and, and it's interesting now you see today the, the darlings of, of the tech business sort of two or three years ago are now suddenly themselves coming into, you know, for scrutiny and criticism because they haven't always been, you know, have they, have they, can they hand on heart say they've always done it, you know, straight up transparently and all the rest of it. And you, you get found out eventually. You might buy yourself a little bit of time, but, you know, you'll, you'll get found out. If you're in a regulated environment, you know, recognize that regulation will, will move on. Personally, you know, I always try and have, um, a cooperative rather than adversarial relationship with regulators because I think you can help regulators a lot. They can help you. It's, it's a really, really powerful relationship. At times, what they want you to do is awkward, difficult. Um, you know, but the, the businesses I stick clear of are the people who go, I think I can get away without being regulated. It's very, very interesting at the moment when you're looking at crypto and every, and the number, I mean, I've met a few crypto businesses and they go, the great news is, hey, we're not regulated. We don't have to worry about that shit. And I'm going, oh, you, you, you are going to have to worry about it because it's going to happen at some stage and you better be there. You better, the ones that win are the person that's there waiting and ready to embrace that rather than the person who's resisting screen. 
I think. So. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.